Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any, of you, any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, before we dig into the teaching of this text, I want to start by talking about something that we don't really understand here at the end of James. There's that bit in verse 15 where it says that the elders should come and pray and anoint a sick person with oil. I know we're often unsure what to do with that, so I thought we'd begin by talking this evening just a little bit about what the oil is all about. Why does James tell the elders to pray and anoint the sick person with oil? Now, first, some people say this was a medicinal thing. Maybe the oil was somehow part of the medical treatments of the time. So James is saying, pray and take your medicine too. Or maybe other people say James is talking about some kind of oil at the time that had special healing properties. And I don't know how big this is right here, but there's kind of a trend in North America right now with this thing called oiling, where people get different oils and they put them on different parts of their body to deal with different maladies. So for a cold, maybe you'd put some olive oil on the back of your neck, and for sore joints, you'd rub some sunflower oil on your ankles. You know, I don't actually know which oils go which places or anything like that. But this is really a thing these days. Some people think that's what James was talking about. But neither of those sort of medicinal approaches get at what James's point is. If James had wanted to say, pray and take your medicine, he would have said, pray and take your medicine, not pray and be anointed with oil. And thinking about the oil as somehow healing in and of itself in some sort of strange way, Well, that takes the focus away from the oil or takes the focus away from the prayer and from the Lord and puts it on the oil. So it seems like the oil here probably isn't medicinal. Now, another approach is to view that anointing oil as sacramental, as a sacrament. And just to review a little bit, God gave us sacraments so that we would have physical things to help us understand the gospel and physical things to confirm that God's good news applies to us. Now, we in the Reformed tradition and Protestants generally hold to two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism reminds us that we have been washed clean of our sins, that we're dead to sin, and we're alive in Christ. And the Lord's Supper, which we took here this morning, reminds us that Jesus' body and blood was broken for us. And also that our Lord continues to feed us spiritually and provide everything that we need to follow him. Now, both baptism and the Lord's Supper were clearly instituted by Christ in the Gospels, and they have this clear connection to Christ's work in saving us. 
So we stick with two sacraments, but the Roman Catholic Church has seven. Now, it took a few centuries to get there, but the Roman Church eventually took this anointing with oil in James to be a sacrament, and it's become part of their whole system of the last rites. And in the Catholic understanding, God somehow works in a special way through the oil, and that anointing with oil becomes a means of grace, very similar to baptism or to the Lord's Supper. But we in the reform camp look at it and say, well, Christ isn't really the one instituting this practice. It doesn't seem like this is a practice for all times and all places necessarily. And it's not really clear how the oil in this case would represent Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So it seems like the anointing with oil isn't really sacramental. So the last, and I think the best way to look at that anointing with oil is to see it pastorally. Now, pastorally can have to do with people who work in the office of pastor, but the bigger meaning behind that word is shepherd. A pastoral person is someone who's like a shepherd with sheep. A pastoral person is someone who cares for others. So it seems like the point of having the elders pray and anoint someone with oil is to give a concrete symbol of the care of the community and the Lord for that sick person. It's not that the oil itself somehow has some sort of medicinal or magical properties. It's just a way that the elders can give a concrete symbol that they care about this sick person and a concrete way to, in a sense, call God's attention to this person and to symbolize the care of the community and the Lord poured out on this person. So practically speaking, we don't usually anoint sick people with oil when we pray for them. In fact, I've never done that. I don't think there would be anything wrong with doing that, but it's not mandated either. What is mandated is that we pray and we care for each other. And that gets us into our next point as we move to talking about the teaching of the text. And there I want to start with the question, when should you pray? So let's think a little bit about when we should pray. Well, once, around this time of year, Two neighbors stopped for a chat in the midst of clearing snow off their driveway, and they talked about a bit of this, a bit of that. What's the weather like? What are your holiday plans? And then one of them casually said, so I realized last night that it was really close to Christmas when I saw this guy with a huge beard and a big bag on his back go walking into your house. And the second guy gave the first guy a funny look and said, what? You're telling me that Santa Claus came into my house last night? Oh, no, 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 says the first neighbor. I realized it was close to Christmas because I saw your son come home from college with a big beard and a bag full of laundry for his mother to do. All right, that story never actually happened. Um, Though I do have to say a lot of the guys who come home for college have beards and bags of laundry. Uh, For some people, people that I knew, for example, not me, but people that I knew, There wasn't a lot of reason to go home during the semester, so when it was time for holiday food and holiday laundry, that would be the only time they'd go home. And I actually wondered if some of the guys went beard crazy right before the Christmas holiday so they could go home and tell their mom, I will shave this off if you clean all those clothes for me. And it probably worked usually. But people approach God in prayer that way too. Most of the time, it's pretty nice just to live your own life But when tough times come, it's nice to have someone to go to for protection and comfort and care and just kind of cleaning things up a bit. But that's not what James calls his readers to do. In verses 13 and 14, James says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? 
let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray for him. Are you troubled, says James? Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Get some other people to pray for you. Now, basically, James is saying that no matter what Christians' lives are like right now, we ought to be always going to God. We should pray in hard times, and we should pray in easy times. We should pray in times of trouble, and we should pray in happy times. Whether we're bringing prayers or we're bringing praises, we need to be going to God continually. And James starts with two points that are a little bit more individually focused. Is someone having a hard time, he asked first. And then he asked, is someone having a great time? But his answer to both of those questions is fundamentally the same. Whether life is good or bad, happy or sad, the right thing to do is to turn to the Lord. Now, as individuals, we're often really motivated to call on God when things are tough. And believers in really hard situations often find their faith and their prayer lives grow tremendously. When you talk to Christians who have been through suffering, through war, through persecution, through really hard things, it sometimes seems like these people who have suffered just radiate faith. When you have nothing but God to depend on, prayer becomes your lifeline. And I know some people in our church, some people here tonight have had that experience. And that experience of really hard times can draw us closer to the Lord. But often in our lives here, we struggle with the opposite challenge. Our lives are often, not always, but often pretty easy here in the western suburbs of Chicago. And so it can be difficult to feel day by day why we need to turn to the Lord all the time. It can be harder to stay focused on God in easy times than in hard times. If things are going poorly, we're tempted to be angry at God, but often we're pretty focused on Him one way or another. But if things are going well, it's really easy for us just to ignore God until the next trouble comes along. So tonight, for each of us as individuals, James asked these questions. Are you in trouble? Is life hard right now? Do you wonder how you're going to make it? Then turn to the Lord in prayer. On the other hand, are you happy? Is life pretty easy right now? Then turn to the Lord in prayer and praise Him for His blessings in your life. Whether things are good or bad, we should be in prayer. We should be going to our Lord. And then James' third question in verse 14 draws the focus from the individual out to the whole church. Is any one of you sick, he asks. Let them call the elders to pray. When times are good and bad, each of us need to turn to God, but we also need to turn to other believers. We should pray for each other. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but James does give us the sense here that the sick person, the person in trouble, needs to open up to the believing community. We are sometimes far too good about keeping things to ourselves. Sometimes we're just embarrassed about our problems. Sometimes we don't want to inconvenience other people. And sometimes we just like our privacy a little bit too much. But if we really want to grow as believers, we need to open up and let other people into even the struggles in our lives. Whether we're physically sick or we're struggling with depression or we need a little financial help, we're called as believers to let other 
people know. Now, this doesn't mean you have to stand up in front of church sometime and announce your deepest struggles and your most desperate needs. But if you're really struggling with something, let the church know. Call an elder. Call a deacon. Talk to a pastor. Talk to another member of the church. Open up and share your life so that we can pray for each other. Christians do not need to walk through the dark valleys of this life alone. One of the purposes of the church is to support each other on this journey. And the only way that really works is if we can take the first step of vulnerability and open up and share with each other. Now on the other end of things, we all have the calling to care for those in need. If you know somebody needs help, give them a call. Offer a helping hand. At Faith, service is one of the things that we do really, really well. There are so many ways that people in this congregation help each other and others outside the church. It is amazing. But let's allow this text to challenge us to do more. Let's serve each other, and in particular, let's serve each other by praying for each other. We need to be constantly in prayer for each other. So as individuals and as the church, we need to turn to God when things are good and when things are bad. We should pray in good times and bad times. But then that leads us to the question of what we should expect out of prayer. What should we expect out of prayer? Now there, James 5.15 says that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now, there are a couple ways that people take that text incorrectly and they expect the wrong thing out of prayer. Some people play the name it and claim it game. If I claim this blessing, this healing, this whatever, and I have enough faith, then I will get what I want. This can be kind of pathetic. You know, I claim a brand new 96-inch TV was surround sound. God had better give it to me. Or it can be heartbreaking. Lord, I claim that my paralyzed family member will be able to walk again. But the problem with the name it and claim it approach is that it doesn't usually work. And often when it doesn't work, people will blame the victim. If your prayer request isn't answered, then you must not have prayed hard enough. If you didn't get what you asked for, you must not have enough faith. If you named it and claimed it and didn't get it, well, you must not be in God's good graces, right? When I was a kid, my younger brother Daniel had leukemia, and he fought that disease for years and years and years. The regular treatments, and then the experimental treatment. The chemo, the radiation, the everything. And it went on and on and on for years. And then finally at the end, there was nothing else we could do, and he ended up dying. And we as a family went through all of that together. We prayed through it, we struggled through it, and we were blessed through it in unexpected ways. But then after my brother had died, a few weeks later, some acquaintances hinted to my parents that they really just hadn't had enough faith. Somehow the family must not have prayed enough. We must not have been sincere enough. There must have been some sin buried in someone's life that meant that my brother wasn't healed. As if somehow we could have pulled the prayer prayer lever more or been more sincere or had more faith and had things turn out differently. And that's just not right. Prayer is not a mechanical process. God is not some sort of divine vending machine where we put in our prayer, pull the lever, and what we want drops out. 
Prayer isn't like placing an Amazon order where you get the package you want in the mail just a few days later. God doesn't work like that. And we probably all know people who have deep, deep faith, who've made really sincere requests to God, and who still haven't got what they wanted. I think of all the people in our church who have cancer, and I know they and their families have been praying and praying and praying. And sometimes we name it, we claim it, we get the answers we want, and sometimes we don't. But the problem in these cases isn't necessarily a lack of faith or a lack of prayer. The problem maybe is that we're expecting the wrong thing from prayer if we play the name it and claim it game. But another way that people limit this text, not the name it and claim it, but kind of the opposite, is to say that it's not really talking about our present lives in the here and now. If we don't play the name it and claim it game, another easy answer is to spiritualize this text and say, oh, it's not really talking about healing right now. What it's talking about is the end of times. Somehow when Jesus comes back, he'll bring all the healing we pray for. But don't expect it right now. The problem here is that people end up living like you can't actually ask God for anything right now. They spiritualize the whole text and all the benefits of the Christian life are pushed off and pushed off to the next life or pushed up to heaven and you don't actually have any hope of God bringing healing in the here and now. And that's pretty clearly not what James is talking about either. Now, both of those approaches can get too caught up in the physical blessings that God provides or doesn't provide, when in fact our real focus needs to be on our relationship with the Lord. What we should expect when we pray is God's grace for now and forever. Now, certainly when we pray, we often are seeking God's help. We have this lifeline, and we grab hold of it and pull. And we ask for things, and we plead for things. But prayer is not ultimately about getting the specific things that we want. Prayer is ultimately about putting our faith in the Lord God and trusting what His will is and trusting what God provides for us. In the end, our prayers are not about getting our own way. Our prayers are about moving us more and more into God's ways. So we pray about the tough things in our lives. We ask God to do what we think is best. And then we rest and trust in God doing what he knows is best. And sometimes when we pray, amazing things happen. Even miracles happen. Sometimes God does respond to our prayers by giving physical or emotional or mental or spiritual healing in unbelievable, inexplicable ways. We pray faithfully and the sick become well. And those times are signs of our coming redemption. The physical healings that we do see here and now, well, they point us forward to the time when Christ will make all things right. Healing in the here and now is a gift that God does give us. And it's also a sign that he will make everything right in times to come. But as Christians, we still recognize that we live in a world that isn't right. We do get signs of the kingdom here and now, so the name it and claim it people do get a little something right. But at the same time, we wait and we wonder sometimes, and we don't get the answers that we want now. The only spiritual blessing people get part of the picture right too. What we should expect from prayer, though, is a little of both. 
We can't just name it and claim it and get it now, but we don't just push the benefits off to some other time and some other place. What we do is we commit ourselves to God. We pray in faith and in hope, and then we leave our trust in God that he is working out his good plan, and he answers our prayers now, and he answers our prayers later. We have signs and promises today, and in faith and hope we have God's grace for now and forever. The section from the Heidelberg Catechism that we read together early tell, earlier tells us that our prayers have to be directed only to the one true God, that they need to come out of our own sense of need and dependency, and that finally our prayers rest on the firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayers for the sake of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. We need to remember that God does hear all the prayers of his people. When we confess our sins, God hears and forgives us. When we're in trouble and we bring prayers and petitions of grief, God hears us. When we're happy and we bring prayers and songs of praises, God hears us. When we're sick or our loved ones are sick and we go to God in prayer, God hears us. And God doesn't just hear our prayers. God uses our prayers and through them he responds to our needs and the needs of others to draw his people closer to him and to bind all of us together with his people and with him himself. So no matter what comes, whether trouble comes or happy times come, whether things are good or bad, let's be people of prayer, trusting in the name and the love of our Lord and Savior.